Coming up this hour, we're going to talk a little bit more about COVID and then be joined by Jim Wahlberg, the author of The Big Hustle, a Boston street kid's story of addiction and redemption. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Monday, friends, and welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. Getting some of the particulars out of the way. Remember, you can find everything we talk about on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. You could also uh, find old shows at 1160hope.com, and we have a podcast. You can go ahead and get that podcast wherever it is. Uh, you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. What better thing could you do over the Thanksgiving holiday when you can't have people over or whatever than just catch up on the podcast? Don't you think, Ian, a little bit of turkey, a little bit of the common good? Doesn't that sound like a good Thanksgiving to you? I, I No lies detected, Brian. <laughs> no lies detected. How are you, bud? How was your weekend this weekend? I Who who knows? I don't know. Who, who, who else could I ask? Actually, no. I will say this. Uh, my wife wanted to have like a, a bit of a trial run Thanksgiving dinner yesterday. Oh, okay. Which, you know, was phenomenal. It was so good. But the trade-off was she said, I like, I like Christmas decor though at Thanksgiving dinner. I historically am pretty strict on the Christmas trees don't go up until the first Sunday of Advent kind of guy. But I also am a big believer in all bets are off in 2020. So <laughs> I was like, you, you got it, babe. Yeah. So we set up the tree and the, you know, we got a one and three year old. So they're like at a magical age when it comes to lights and, you know, they'll still dance to Christmas music and nice. all that. Yeah. So it was lovely. How about you? Uh, likewise, I'm a big believer. Oh, I have always been about not not doing anything Christmassy before uh, Thanksgiving. But my youngest daughter, especially, has been like, "Let's get the lights up. Let's get the lights up." So we didn't put the tree up, uh, but my son and I went and picked up lights, and it was so nice on on Saturday that we put up the Christmas lights outside. And I have to be honest with you. I kind of like it. They wow. look good out there. Look at so look at like you, uh, like you, we got some Christmas lights up and uh, that, that's gone badly in the past. So I was, I was proud that we got them up well. And uh, I did see your stuff on social media. You, uh, I don't know if you know this about yourself. I feel like you're becoming more and more the doting father. You've always been a doting father, but you uh, are putting up the videos of your kids and the pictures. <laughs> your kids are darn cute though, man. I would, I would keep putting those pictures. Oh, up thanks, there. thanks man. I'm, I'm sure was. I've lost dozens of friends on Facebook because of it. Like we get it. You have children. But... <laughs> I support it. Yeah, thanks, man. <laughs> oh, and then we also did a, uh, my daughter's, uh, the second part of her 17th birthday party was last night with some friends. And we went down to zoo lights at the Lincoln park zoo. Right on. And uh, it was nice to be in like a semi crowd of people, but outside and really spread out with masks on. It was kind of a little bit of normalcy. It was kind of fun. So right on. Uh, glad to have everybody joining us again, though, on this Monday afternoon, another week. Uh, we will be, this is obviously Thanksgiving week. So Ian and I will be with you today and tomorrow. And then you get to hear some old interviews, some best of shows here on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. We'll pull out some of the best stuff from the past couple months and uh, you can catch up on that stuff. So uh, I started us here with kind of, there's kind of a theme here, three articles from this weekend that I was reading uh, that, that, are, that are COVID related, but more from uh, kind of what are some things that some Christians are doing? I'll start with two of these, I would say, are shake your head really, really kind of bad. And then we'll end with what I think is is a kind of a thought provoking one. First one's this. I'm just going to read the headline, Ian, and I would like your reaction. 
we have talked about Sean. How do we say his name? Foyt? Sean Foyt? Yeah. Uh, he's been going around doing uh, kind of the concerts and uh, what do you call it? Like a kind of COVID protests. And uh, anyway, worship concerts. He's out of Bethel and uh, been going all over the country. Let me just read this headline from Relevant Magazine. Well, Sean Foyt is now selling Jesus Christ super spreader T-shirts. Ian Simpkins, how do you react to that? Not a big fan. Uh, it is a, a it's a bizarre move, but the very fact that we're talking about it, you uh-huh. could make the case then it's a good marketing move on his part. I guess it just I don't mean to be one of these guys, but here we go. Um, I'm all for like the pun. And the <laughs> yes. even the provocateur and the like turning things on it, but like people have lost loved ones. People people have yes. gone through just horrific instances in their life. So like I don't know, Jesus Christ super spreader to me not only feels remarkably insensitive, but just mm-hmm. kind of in, in poor taste. And that's coming from me. If you've listened to the show for more than a minute and a half, <laughs> you know that like I'm Mister Poor Taste Joke maker like that happens more often than i care to admit this to me is just like ah i i that to me feels like a swing and a miss at best yeah he's he apparently was referred to in rolling stone magazine as uh they titled his stuff jesus christ super spreader so of course he turned it into a Mm t-shirt and uh, that will be what i'm getting ian simpkins for christmas this year so (laughs) i can't wait to (laughs) preach in it Second one, I you might have seen this is Oklahoma Mega Church. We read this at NBC News says cancels friends giving amid COVID spike gives food away. Victory Church, which is a mega church in Oklahoma, uh, I was like, oh, this is good. I'm glad for the step. But then you go on to read the story and you say you see that they recently have come under fire for uh, two massive indoor events. Uh, many people tweeting the church should be ashamed, but they had these big concerts kind of along the lines of, well, churches kind of have some wiggle room. Um, but, Ian, we're seeing this all over the place, right? Churches kind of doing things that uh, that are kind of, I would say, giving a little bit of a black eye to people who, who uh, are, you know, are trying to live under the guidelines. What, what is your reaction when you see kind of churches holding indoor concerts or Friendsgiving or any of these things, whether it's technically uh, allowed or not? Well, it does look like Henshaw here has released some statements about some of their guidelines for, you know, operating mm-hmm. at fifty percent capacity, uh, signage for social distancing, masks, extra cleaning, blah 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 blah. Um, it, I'll tell you what it first does to me when I when I see this stuff on social media. It reminds me just how vastly different mm-hmm. our own country is. Like, it is easy to assume that you know everyone kind of in our geographical area thinks entirely the same about all of these issues, politics or COVID or music or any of that. It's, it is pretty wild to see like just how vastly different, not even just Americans, but you know, American Christians have responded to this and it's only, it's only made easier by social media, right? Everyone's kind of offering their uh, opinions in real time, sometimes ad nauseum. That's just constantly there. I, I, it it is bizarre um, to me, I guess, at least how, how wildly diverse, the church has responded to this. Yeah, absolutely. And let me end with this last article. And this last article might require us another day to do it for longer. It's from Christianity Today. Christians ready to help COVID-19 vaccine go to the neediest 
first. And uh, this first line, medical experts prep for ethical distribution. As you hear all of this vaccine talk, another vaccine came out today with really high grades and, mm-hmm. and some real good promise. Uh, do you have any concerns about how this is going to get set? I actually don't know how it's going to get out there, but uh, talk about your your thoughts on how we as the church can kind of get ahead and, and advocate for ethical distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine. I mean, I think that's the whole point of this article is uh, yeah. is Christians stepping up preemptively to say, you know, however you defined neediest or the most at risk, like they, sh- they should get it first. Like that to me, this is a very like real time modern opportunity mm-hmm. to sort of take a first shall be last kind of posture to yeah. care for the marginalized, the least of these, and whatever language you want to use. This is a great example to say, hey, uh, you may have intended to do this this way anyway, but for Christians to say we want to advocate uh, and articulate proactively that those who are the most vulnerable should uh, should get it first. I, I think that's a great opportunity for the church. Yeah, and maybe we'll talk more about this because this article is great at Christianity Today entitled Christians Ready to Help COVID-19 Vaccine Go to the Neediest First. You can find that at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to be joined by Jim Wahlberg, the author of a book entitled The Big Hustle, A Boston Street Kid's Story of Addiction and Redemption. You're not going to want to miss that interview with Jim Wahlberg coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm, and we are thrilled to be joined for the next two segments by the author of The Big Hustle, a Boston street kid's story of addiction and redemption. That author is Jim Wahlberg. Jim, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience however you'd like? Are you sure about that? Yeah, <laughs> we are. We you are. Get that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever way you would like. Hmm. Well, let's see. Um, I mean, you said it. I, I'm, I'm an author now. That's like a new new title for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I am, um, you know, I'm a filmmaker. Uh, I do a little public speaking, all really around the issue of addiction. Mm. And the opioid epidemic in particular, I've been educating families and young people for probably about the last 10 years or so. Um, And in that time, I think I've made, I think, about 10 or 11 films on addiction. And this this journey into writing and and authoring this book is new for me. Um, It's something that I've thought about over the years. It's been something that I've been encouraged to do over the years. But... um, but, you know, I just, it, it, it came together at the right time. Mm-hmm. It came together with the right publisher. It came mm-hmm. together with the right sort of place in my own life and in, in, in my preparedness to share my story. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, that's a long introduction, but that's who I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love it. We're going to talk about your filmmaking a little bit later in the show, but I, I do want to ask you about this memoir because, like you were just saying, it's something that's been brewing for a while and the, and the timing just felt right. I'd love for you to just kind of like cast vision for the book. Like, what is what are your hopes for this kind of memoir? Like, who is it for? What are you hoping to accomplish through it? Hmm. Well, um, you know, I think it's probably mainly for. Uh, I was hoping to chip away at the stigma that's mm-hmm. connected to this thing, and it, it it interferes with a lot of people getting help, and it really sort of. 
it, it really tears so many families apart. Um, you know, I thought that if I shared my story, uh, it would give maybe some folks some hope. Um, and really, you know, the messaging and it, that I'm hoping to deliver is that nothing's too big for God, mm. right? That yeah. we can overcome just about anything if we if we rely on God and we trust in God. And uh, and so, you know, it's it's a combination of for the for the person struggling. I think it's for them, but it's also for the families, right? Mm-hmm. So they can see what's possible. Hmm. Jim, I'm wondering, it might be helpful for people, parents and other people to hear what attracted you to alcohol and to drug uh, to drugs in the first place. Well, I think my my addictions really were were rooted in um, wanting to be accepted, wanting to be loved, wanting to, you know, for 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 people to like me. Um, I was sort of lost in in empty inside and I was looking to fill it with attention from other people and of course when you do that you generally end up looking for that attention from the wrong people mm-hmm. and so the wrong people were the people that I was I guess most attracted to because they were the easiest to get in with all they had to do was find a way to get some money or right. or find a way to get some alcohol or some drugs and I was I would fit right in and and at a very young, young age, um, I did that. I didn't feel that that love or acceptance in my home. There's nine kids. Mom and dad are both working two jobs just trying to put food on the table. And I'm sort of lost mm-hmm. and, and left to fend for myself, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's what I did. I, I found older, older uh, kids that were doing... Whatever it was, what they were doing, it didn't matter what they were doing. They could be jumping off buildings, right. and and I probably would have started jumping off buildings. I just wanted them to, to to like me, to want me, to hang around with me, to laugh at my dumb jokes or whatever. Mm-hmm. I was just looking for acceptance. See, one of the things that Brian and I both encountered because we're we're pastors and we've run different you know recovery programs like Celebrate Recovery and others. And one of the things that I I almost always hear people talk about when they're in recovery is they talk about hitting rock bottom. Like mm-hmm. I I'd, I'd be curious, did you have a rock bottom moment? And if so, what what was that like? I have if I have to be honest, I'd have to say that I hit many rock bottom moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, for me, I was in prison again. Right, I had already done five years in a in a in adult prison and a whole mm-hmm. bunch of times in juvenile detention and foster homes and group homes. Um, but I was in prison again, and I was doing six to nine years, and I just didn't want to do nine years. So I started running game. I was already physically without drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just didn't want to do nine years. That was the simplest I could make it. And so I started doing things to create an illusion that I was trying to get better. Right. Mm-hmm. And for the first time in my life, I said, what is it that I'm trying to get better from? Right. Cause I never identified as alcohol and drugs as part of the problem. To me, they were the solution. Right. Mm-hmm. I thought I was just a crazy person. Right. And so I'm in prison and I get approached by a priest who offers me a job in the chapel cleaning up. And, and I'm thinking, I'm going to hustle this guy. I'm going to manipulate the situation. I'll get access to a phone. He smokes cigarettes, you know, 
I'll get coffee. I'll get a quiet place to just settle my head. And um, so I'm thinking I'm going to hustle him. Ultimately, his plan was he was hustling me. He was trying to get me back to the foot of the cross. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I don't think it was so much a – my life was a bottom, if, if I can really be as blunt as I can be. It, it really was. It was a steady bottom. Mm-hmm. It wasn't – there was no roller coaster. I can count on two hands how many times I really had fun with drugs and alcohol. Hmm. You know, it was always out of necessity. It was, there was very few times that I was out having fun. Hmm. A night would start, you know, I might have a little fun at six o'clock in the evening, but by seven thirty, I would slip into a blackout and then it was, you know, get my head split open, hmm. get arrested, wake up in jail. You know, it wasn't, uh, so there wasn't a single event for me that was a bottom it was I was a steady bottom guy and I, there was an opportunity for me to sort of get out of the basement if hmm. you will yeah. yeah yeah and with like the last minute or two that we have here in this segment I'm curious what was it about the Catholic priest uh, what was it about him that helped you uh, turn around well I mean he was so he was just he was slicker than I was right <laughs> I thought I was talking with him he was hustling me. He got me back to the foot of the cross. And then soon after that, he tells me we got a very special visitor coming to the prison. And I'm like, really, who's that? And he said, Mother Teresa is coming to this prison. Wow. And I said, that's amazing. Who's Mother Teresa? I didn't even know who she was. <laughs> I, I probably didn't know who the president of the United States was. To, to be fair, I probably didn't know who the president was either at that moment hmm. because I was so damaged and so broken and so and my mind was still just wet mm-hmm. you know yeah. and uh and and it was in the experience of of being in her presence is is the most defining moment in my life mm. it, to me i felt like i was like i was looking at the face of god mm. like I, I there's no other way for me to explain it i never saw such humility and I never heard the word spoken that she spoke she stood up at the altar and told everybody but only she was really only talking to me Hmm. she said you're more than the crimes that you committed to get here you're a child of God Hmm. Jesus Christ died for you and I felt like there was nobody else in the room she was speaking directly to me and for a kid who grew up with God's gonna get you Hmm. That was those were those words were unbelievable because I never I never heard those words I never heard God loves me I only heard God's going to get you for the bad things that you've done yeah mm, yeah that other voice here is Jim Wahlberg we're thrilled that he's going to join us for another segment as we discuss his story and his book The Big Hustle a Boston street kid story of addiction and redemption we're uh, glad that Jim's going to continue to join us next year on the Common Good AM eleven sixty hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, I'm, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. And we're glad to continue to be joined by Jim Wahlberg. Uh, he is the author of The Big Hustle, a Boston street kid's story of addiction and redemption. If you missed the first segment, 
where Jim really kind of opened up about his story. I can't encourage you enough to go find that at our podcast and uh, go catch up and listen to that. Jim, I'm curious, just your opinion in, in the uh, in the midst of COVID and all that's going on for all of us, including kids. Uh, what effect do you believe that COVID right now is having uh, on our on our teenagers and and people who may already be struggling with addiction? Well, uh, in terms of folks that are struggling with addiction, so recovery is community, it's love, it's connection. And addiction is the exact opposite. It's isolation, it's loneliness, it's separation. And, and we're being told that we need to isolate and separate and stay away from mm-hmm. people. And so I, th- I know that this, this, this pandemic is affecting everybody, but this particular population, folks that suffer from addiction and folks that suffer with mental illness, um, this has been an unprecedented mm-hmm. time. And, you know, we started to see sort of a downtick in, in, uh, in, overdose deaths and non-fatal overdoses just before the pandemic things started to seem to get better and now they're just going in the absolute opposite direction so I'm very I'm very worried I'm, I'm very uh, I'm very afraid I speak to many many people who are struggling and um, yeah it's it's a tough time and, and we need we need God more than ever right now. You mentioned community and I'm so glad that you did because I, I think you're spot on there. And you mentioned earlier, you know, coming from a, a big family, addiction does more than just mess with you physically. There's also like relational damage that happens. How, how have you gone about like repairing some of those relationships with, with your family and, and close community? So, you know, the, the good news for me is that uh, it's been it's been a it's been a long long time now for me on, on my journey in recovery, um, but you know you have to earn all of that back. You have to earn the trust of your family back. You have to earn the trust of your friends back. You have to you know they they love you. They're your family. It's kind of a law, I think. They have to love you, right? But. They don't have to like you and they don't have to continue to suffer the, the fallout from your addiction and the embarrassment and the shame that goes along with that. Right. For me, you know, I was constantly in trouble, constantly into something that was going to bring shame to my family and friends because I didn't go away to do it. I did it right there in my own neighborhood and I have eight, eight brothers and sisters that also spent time hanging out on the street corners like I did and playing sports and doing the things that I did at a very young age and they were still doing it. And, and they were constantly hearing about their brother that did this or yeah. did that. And, um, you know, it, it, it takes time. It takes, uh, it takes, uh, I mean, it takes, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of forgiveness. There's a lot of healing. Um, and, you know, I've been blessed that I have great relationships with, with my siblings and my mom. Um, and, um, but it took time. It took time for me to, for them to get to a place where they weren't waiting for the bottom to fall out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and uh, because the bottom would fall out right. constantly, it would look like I was getting it together. And then 
I'd be mm. gone again. If someone's listening right now, Jim, and they're going, man, I have a family member. I have a friend that, that you, what you're describing is, is what they're going through. Uh, what would you suggest a good first step to be to try to get help? Or what's a good first step if you've got a friend or a family member who's kind of in the throes of addiction? Well, I think that I can't say enough for prayer, right? I think prayer is, is essential, mm-hmm. right? Um, I know there were a lot of people praying for me when I was out there struggling, and um, and their prayers were answered, thank God. But I think that communication, letting people know that you love them, that you care about them, and that you want to help them. That doesn't mean you want to give them money. That doesn't mean you want to do their laundry and, and, and feed their drug habit. Because I think that a lot of times we, we fall into that. We fall into not wanting to watch our loved ones suffer. And so we, 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 we end up becoming part of the problem, right? right? We need to, we, there needs to be boundaries, but we, we need to let them know how much we love them and how much we care about them and how much we're prepared to invest our time in their recovery as yeah. well. That it matters, to, it matters to you that they recover and that you're prepared to help them in any way you can um, for that outcome yeah, only. Right. Jim, I want to make sure that we mention this because 2020 has been a, a big year for you. You have this book, right? The Big Hustle. You also have a, a documentary on addiction called What About the Kids? Can you tell us a little bit more about that and where people can find out more? Sure. So it's actually a scripted hmm. film. Um, so it's not, it's not a documentary. It's, it's a scripted film. And it, it, it's the star of the film is an eight-year-old girl who loses her mom to an overdose. And her dad is also suffering from addiction and she ends up being raised by her grandparents. Um, and you can find that at whataboutthekidsfilm.com. Um, and it's been up for, I think, about two and a half months. And we've already had about 350,000 wow. views. Um, people are, this, this is a story that is really impacting people. And there are so many grandparents right now that their plan was, I worked hard all my life. I'm going to downsize. I'm going to move to Florida. I'm going to retire. And now they're raising their grandchildren because of fatal overdoses from opium. And so, um, yeah, the film has been, it's been well received. There's a lot of other stuff on the site. There is a documentary that sort of, it's another family's experience with the uh, with with overdose and death uh, as it relates to the film, uh, and there's behind the scenes. There's and there's also numbers and information for you to get some assistance if you're struggling with addiction awesome. right now. And again, Jim, we're super grateful for you coming on. I, I would love for you to take the last minute or two that we have. Uh, there might be somebody listening right now who's at rock bottom, like they've just hit rock bottom. And I would love for you to speak just for a minute, a word of hope uh, and maybe maybe even uh, some encouragement to that person who might feel like they've hit the bottom. Hmm. So, you know, I was homeless. I was living under the front porch of a friend of mine's uh, family's house. And I was literally sleeping in the dirt, thinking, this is it. This is as good as it's going to get for me. And I had sort of given up to the fact that my life, this was the way my life was going to be. And, uh, but God had a plan for me. And God has a plan for you too. And I know that 
if I can recover and enjoy a life of recovery and a life of service, right, that anybody can, right? It's you're worth more than your addiction. You're worth more than the thoughts in your mind about the fact that, you know, there's something wrong with you or you're not good enough, mm-hmm. right? I live with that. I live with the, the thought of everybody around me was better than me. Um, and I don't have to live like that anymore. In a day at a time, you don't have to live like that anymore that's either. True. That's true. Thank you so much. That's the other voice is Jim Wahlberg. He is the author of The Big Hustle, a Boston street kid story of addiction and redemption. Uh, also, as he talked about the movie, What About the Kids? Uh, you can follow Jim on Twitter at jwally, J-W-A-H-L-L-Y. Jim, this has been great. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much, friend. Yeah, thanks, man. Thank you. And thank you. You know, when you guys do stories about addiction and and you bring it, sort of to the forefront and to the mainstream. It does so much to chip away at the stigma of this thing. Um, you know, we're, we're all suffering in one way or another, and we're all broken, and we all need to heal. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So pick up the book, The Big Hustle, A Boston Street Kid's Story of Addiction and Redemption. Jim Wahlberg, thanks again. And uh, you are listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. <laughs> back to the common good am 1160 hope for your life alongside ian simpkins my name is brian Fromm. really glad to have you with us on a monday afternoon ian uh mondays we already we always joke about especially for pastors but for all people mondays are kind of uh the start of the work week and this you know what i did to make my monday even better today i had extensive dental work done this morning that required lots of numbing Okay. And uh, and now that numbing is wearing off just while doing a radio show, so the pain's setting in. Wonderful. Uh, what a wonderful Monday. Now people are like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I bring that up to say, if you're having a bad Monday, let me tell you about my Monday yeah, right I, I, I feel like I was promised that your words would be slurring a lot more than they are, and uh, I'm a little disappointed. Yeah, if you, if we had talked about two hours ago, really? uh, that was definitely the case as half of my face was numb. And then it like just goes away. And then, like I said, the pain sets in. Um, I forget. Are you uh, are you one who enjoys the dentist or are you like I hate I know people who enjoy the de- not no, really what don't. I went through no, today. You don't. you don't. I mean, like dentists, like a good cleaning, like, a, you know, you know, people that like going to the dentist even for a cleaning. Uh, not only do I know people, I have I have been married to one for the past twenty years. <laughs> yes. Okay, can we get her on at some point? Because I have questions. She loves now, not like getting a filling or getting a tooth, but she loves going to the dentist and getting a good cleaning and this and that. Loves it. I hate it. That is another spot where we are not the same in our marriage. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like the majority of people might be on your side with that one, Brian. For once. Nice. Okay. Uh, So anyway, Russell Moore, who we've quoted many times on this show, Russell Moore, uh, I think, speaks, has a great voice, particularly even in the evangelical world. And he's got a tie in politically. And uh, I I tend to really resonate with a lot of stuff that Russell Moore has to say. He wrote, uh, it looks like early last week, he wrote a blog post entitled Looking for Truth in Post-Election America. Looking for Truth in Post-Election America. I think this is such a huge topic. So why don't we get into this article, Ian, and then we'll talk about it. Why don't you get us into this article? Why don't I? This past week, he writes, a friend told me uh, that a pastor we know couldn't get through this pastoral prayer last week. 
He was interrupted, it seems, by a woman screaming at him from the pews for something he had said. That should not, on its face, surprise us that much. The gospel, after all, is supposed to be, quote, a scandal to the world, at odds with the wisdom and power prized by this fallen age. So what did the pastor say that elicited this kind of reaction? Was it the exclusivity of Christ for access to God, the reality of hell and a day of judgment, that a virgin conceived and that a dead man was resurrected? No. What brought such fury was his prayer that God would give wisdom and judgment to Joe Biden as he becomes the new president of the country. Normally I would read more. I'm going to stop right there. Uh, One, did you see that coming? And two, what do you think of that? Uh, did I see it coming? Sadly, yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because right. this, uh, think about, was it last week? Last Monday, we talked to David French about his article, uh, God Blessed uh, President Biden. And he said, in, you know, 2016, when he wrote God Bless President Trump, and that it's just so angering people, even when we say let's pray or let's support or let's even wish well on the next president, even if we didn't vote for him. Uh, so, no, it doesn't surprise me. Um, you know, it, I, I thought there was one of two choices. He either prayed for President Biden, President-elect Biden, or he asked somebody to pull their mask mask up. <laughs> so I thought it was going to be one of those two. But no, that's the age we live in. And you and I have been kind of banging this drum that this is a problem. This is a problem that these are the reactions that increasingly I think people are having. Well, why do you think that is? What, what do you think is underneath that? Uh, I think that in some ways our politics used to be kind of like a sport and now our politics is religion. I think our politics, people take it as uh, as uh, absolute truth as they do the gospel. And so uh, for their candidate to lose, and we've been talking about this over the last couple of weeks, but for their candidate to lose and the other party to come in uh, is no longer a disappointment. Now it's just heresy. And so uh, by any means necessary, we, we've got to step in and stop this. I think that's what's going on. I think politics, like I said, is no longer, I used to think of it as a sport. And now so many people I know, it feels more, uh, it feels more deep seated than that. And it brings about these kind of reactions. Do, do you think it's more that people are upset that someone would allude to the election being decisive or the fact that they're so. praying for someone on the left. I think it's a I think there's both. I think certainly I think a lot of the people who are less likely to pray for a president who's on the left right now are mad that you'd even suggest that the election is over. Uh, and so um, I suspect that her outburst in her service in that during that sermon probably had more to do with the election than praying for pr- President Biden. Hmm. Uh, but I, I remember when Obama was in office, uh, I got an, an enormous amount of pushback from some people uh, for uh, for speaking, uh, you know, prayer for praying or, or wanting God to bless President Obama. I, I remember. And then when I've if I've ever spoken like about that with Trump, there's another side who seemed to get angry. It's kind of equal opportunity right now. But uh, so I, I do. I think it's a little bit of a both. And what do you think about that? You think it's election tide or it's uh, it's a it's a Democrat president reason? You know, in, in my little corner of the universe, it seems to be more the latter. I, I made a post, I think, the day or two after the election saying, hey, I'm committing to praying for you. And people publicly and privately were like, whew, that was courageous. That was brave. I was like, <laughs> wait, is it? Like, I, I, I almost started second guessing myself. Like, well, I didn't even – I made no allusion whatsoever to what I agreed or disagreed with. I was like, yeah, I'm committed to praying for our leaders. 
Hmm. It really was not much longer than that. I remember. Uh, Yeah. And, and there wasn't a lot of blowback necessarily, but there certainly were a number of people that, you know, I I would consider friends say, Hey, man, that was bold. Yeah. (laughs) Oh shoot. Was it? I, you know, I think because (laughs) of, you know, there are certain assumptions from certain people based on, I, I don't know. It, It is strange to me and maybe I'm just, you know, paying attention more now than I have in elections past, but it, that feels real prickly right now. Yeah. Let me read you one short paragraph that Russell Moore wrote, and okay. we'll close this out by just getting your reaction to see if you think he's right and onto something here. He says uh, this, what he was talking about before is because we live in a time in which, quote, truth is seen as a means to tribal belonging rather than as a reality that exists outside of us. And that's true even among, sometimes even especially among those who spent the last 20 years arguing about the dangers of postmodern relativistic ideas of, quote, truth and the rejection of meta narratives. What do you think about uh, his his kind of uh, saying that truth is seen as a means to tribal belonging rather than a reality, <clears throat> excuse me, that exists outside of us? I, I think the both they can both coexist. I think truth has always been a means to tribal belonging in some way, shape, mm-hmm. or form. Maybe not worded quite that way. I think there's probably a lot since the Enlightenment that has contributed to that. I also think it is worth cautioning because it. I don't know anyone who believes wholeheartedly that what they're holding on to is a lie or that they're, they're banking their life on like, yes, I know that I'm being duped and I've chosen to commit my life to this thing. So part of what gets tricky is, of course, everyone assumes they are the holder of truth, even sure. if that truth is truth is relative, you know, so it, it, it can sometimes become a false equivalency to say, listen, you're upset with me, but I just I just believe the truth. You're like, well, that even your version of the truth has been interpreted a, a million different ways by smart women, men and women throughout the centuries. And so that, that always gets a little tricky, but mm-hmm. um, I, I do, I think we're almost even beyond a, a postmodern relativism. I feel like that's what we were cautioned against at undergrad 16 years that's ago. Right. I think, I think we've, we've moved on in some ways as a culture. And I, I'll, I'll be curious to see how the, the church, especially amidst COVID uh, navigates yep. that in the years to come. Yeah, in a tweet this weekend, I think it was Derwin Gray who we've had on the show before. I think Derwin said that we are post postmodernism. Is what he yeah, said in right. his tweet. Kind of what you're getting at there. Well, check out this article at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show by Russell Moore, looking for truth in post-election America. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to dive back into a story that we talked a few times about last week, uh, Carl Lentz, uh, and some of the issues that are coming up uh, from his story about uh, how we treat pastors in general. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope you're Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about Carl Lentz and then be joined by Diana Groover, author of Companions in the Darkness, Seven Saints Who Struggled with Depression and Doubt. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Uh, If you've missed any of the show, you could go to our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show, or go get the podcast and catch up on old shows, old interviews, including Jim Wahlberg, 
the author of The Big Hustle, who we just interviewed last hour. And Ian, I was just talking to my kids and I was like, hey, I interviewed uh, one of the brothers of Mark and Donnie Wahlberg. And I was really surprised how impressed my children were by that. Really? <laughs> what was their reaction? Like, you mean like Mark, like, like, like the movie star, Mark Wahlberg? I'm like, but we didn't interview him. Like, I know, but wow, that's cool. I'm like, all Still. right. <laughs> I go, are you impressed by me now? <laughs> <laughs> You're a words of affirmation guy, even to your kids, aren't you? Even to my kids, even more so from my kids, uh -huh. I think. Uh, but that interview was fascinating. If you missed it, Jim Wahlberg kind of sharing his story of addiction and drug abuse and then redemption. Uh, I, I can't encourage you enough. Go to the podcast and you can find that. Well, uh, at Religion News, uh, Carl Lentz, they wrote another story about Carl Lentz uh, entitled this, Carl Lentz and the, quote, hot pastor problem. And I'll have you dive into this article here uh, in a second. But I've been surprised by how much how much legs this Carl Lentz story has right now. Those of you who are unfamiliar, Carl Lentz, uh, kind of celebrity pastor of Hillsong in New York City. Uh, was lost his job, was fired two weeks ago, I believe, uh, when it came out that he had an affair. Uh, and, and the lady uh, who he had the affair with was on Good Morning America the other day. Carl Lentz has already moved to California. And I watched a show the other day, a news show, and they did a whole segment on him, like not a Christian show. Uh, I don't know. Are you surprised at all by the legs that this story has had at all, Ian? Uh, I can't say that I'm surprised. It's definitely, I mean, we've been talking about cancel culture since we started the show i feels like mm -hmm. it feels like the soil is is primed is ready it's it's been tilled for for this kind of scandal unfortunately i it does bum me out that <sighs> these stories just keep continuing to happen yes. like i remember i was talking with somebody a couple of years ago who was newer to the faith and, you know, the stuff that happened in Chicagoland with, you know, two big churches experiencing pretty massive public removals of their leaders. And he was like, gosh, that is heartbreaking, but at least it's not going to happen anymore. And I was like, <laughs> I was like what? He goes, well, now, I mean, now that it's happened to guys that well known, like pastors will wise up. It's not going to happen anymore. And I was like, bro, this has been happening for quite some time. It's like, they keep yeah. doing it. I'm like, yes. It they is, keep doing it. And again, I know that those stories are different than this story, uh, but it, yeah, there is a certain sense, though, where I appreciated his his like, well, obviously, this will be a, a, a frightening enough warning shot for anyone who was thinking about heading down that way. And I was like, no, that's what's so discouraging is that it, it yeah. does just keep happening. Yeah. And so this article at Religion News and Opinion Piece entitled Carl Lentz and the Hot Pastor Problem. Maybe the problem isn't hot pastors like Lentz, but a toxic megachurch culture that makes narcissism a prerequisite. For the many reasons you said there, I think this is an important article. I'm not going to say as the hot pastor on the on the show, will you take this article? Going to let that one pass. Mm, and uh, wow. I'm just kidding. Why don't you dive us into the article here? Carl Lentz and the hot pastor. Why, why don't I dive us in? That's <laughs> I'd be delighted. It starts off by saying, for how much the Bible tells us what Jesus said and what he means, it's striking how little it tells us about his appearance. Based on his ethnicity and birthplace, he was almost certainly brown skin with dark eyes and hair. He had a beard. But the only comment on the Messiah's looks comes from the biblical prophet Isaiah, who Christians believe foretold Jesus' arrival in Israel, quote, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Translation? Jesus of Nazareth wasn't hot. So it's striking that the most successful church growth trend in the United States, one ostensibly meant to point people to Jesus, is putting forward male leaders who are, by conventional standards, 
physically attractive. In the world of megachurches, charisma more than character has become a requirement for leadership, and it's axiomatic that physical beauty is a key component of charisma, especially if you are trying to attract other beautiful people. After all, the gospel is for hot people, too. If hot pastors are what God uses to take the good news to hot people, well, God works in mysterious ways, some requiring very toned biceps. Uh, I'll pause there. What are you laughing at? What uh, What is your reaction thus far? It's just funny and sad, but it is. Uh, I I uh, I jokingly was thinking to myself, oh, now I know why my church isn't growing at this massive oh, rate. <laughs> stop, stop Kidding, I kid. Uh, I, you know what? There is this whole niche of celebrity pastor that you can tell, and you've read the we've read the articles about. Uh, the amount of thought that goes into a clothing budget or the amount of thought that goes into persona and image uh, that when you really sit back and think about it, you go, how did we get to that spot? Again, nothing wrong with nice clothes, nothing wrong with looking nice when you're sure. preaching or whatever. Uh, this isn't like, OK, now every pastor should just like look like, you know, uh, like uh, they just woke up in the morning. But um, but there is some she's got a point here, right? Caitlin Beatty has a point here that we in the especially in the mega church world seem to be holding up stuff in our leaders uh, that not only is not biblical, but doesn't match Jesus. Uh, and she's trying to call that into question. And she's going to go on to basically say this is not just the problem of the pastor. This is the problem of the people who put them on the pedestal. Hmm. And we need to stop doing that, which I think is an important point in all of this. But, yeah, you do read her article. You're like. This is true. How did we get to this spot? Yeah, a former member of Hillsong uh, described the culture that thrives on inequity with uh, and rewards leaders with privilege, power, and self-importance while asking, quote, lesser members to carry the behind-the-scenes load. It's no wonder that he became untethered. I do want to say something briefly that probably doesn't need to be said, but this can happen in big churches and small churches. This this is what I found. Absolutely. In the, you know, with the his... The specific attraction, attractiveness, uh, notwithstanding, like the narcissism that you know, you and I probably have both seen actually in churches. Mm-hmm. I, I think the size of the church can certainly contribute to certain cultures, but it it is not a requirement. I I've met leaders, absolutely, of big churches and small churches who are incredibly humble and gracious and authentic mm-hmm. and kind and i've seen the opposite in both size churches so i don't necessarily think that it's it's strictly the size that contributes to this but it you i mean uh, some of the warning signs sure are obvious though yeah and i mean in the chicagoland area to be honest with you the church that you serve at and the leader dave ferguson under it i think is a great example i don't know dave personally but i've read enough of his stuff and know enough of him and i've talked to mm-hmm. you that i think he's a great example of uh, exactly what you're saying right. of that, that there could be humility 100%. and uh, and in a megachurch. I think it is an important point that you make just about every time we have this discussion that it's big church and small church. And in fact, some of the most arrogant pastors I've ever met are like those single, like alone, like lone wolf pastors of a small mm. church. And uh, I, I think that is so true. I just want to read how she ends this article. She writes, Christian humility is about forgetting oneself. 
True gospel humility, Tim Keller writes, means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. Mm -hmm. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. And she concludes this way. It's hard for anyone standing under the bright lights of a megachurch stage to forget about themselves. Maybe the problem isn't the hot pastors like Lentz, but a toxic megachurch culture that makes narcissism a prerequisite. Mm. That's a heavy statement that uh, I think we all need to sit on and we can't just blame the person up front. I think there's a culture that we in evangelicalism have to think about and talk about and kind of figure out what we're going to do about. So this article from Religion News is up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, uh, we're excited to be joined by Diana Groover. Uh, She has a new book coming out just tomorrow, Companions in the Darkness, Seven Saints Who Struggled with Depression and Doubt. We're going to talk to Diana next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us on this Monday afternoon. Well, we are thrilled to be joined uh, by author Diana Groover, whose new book, Companions in the Darkness, Seven Saints Who Struggled with Depression and Doubt, comes out tomorrow. Uh, so first of all, Diana, thanks for joining us, but congratulations on your book uh, coming yeah. out tomorrow. Uh, uh, we're yeah. excited for you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's really exciting. It's good to be with you guys today. Thank you. And and why don't you introduce yourself so our audience can get to know you a little bit before we dive into the book. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. I'm coming today from Pennsylvania. It's where I grew up. And I'm a writer. I write on my own blog. And my book, Companions in the Darkness, as you mentioned, comes out tomorrow. I also work for a nonprofit called the Veer Institute. And I'm also a full-time mom. Mm. So between all of those things, I keep myself pretty busy. (laughs) (laughs) How in the world are you able to pull all that off is amazing to me. Uh, We actually just wrapped up a series at our church on mental illness. And it was fascinating to get some of the feedback from people like, I've never even heard a church tackle these topics before and how, you know, helpful people found to kind of break the stigma. Your specific angle with the book is uh, saints who struggled with depression and doubt. Before we kind of get into the specifics, where did that idea for a book come from in the first place? So I attended Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and I studied spiritual formation there. And the degree program is heavily weighted in church history. So that's where I first heard some of these stories. I personally have struggled with depression. And so I think whenever you've walked through something like that, you start to notice it in the lives of other people. And so I started to notice it in the lives of other people throughout the history of the church. And I couldn't help but wonder why I had never heard their stories Mm -hmm. and how my own experience of struggling with depression may have been different if I had heard those stories before then. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, I read this line into the description of your book. It says, the church's relationship with depression has been fraught. For centuries, depression was assumed to be evidence of personal sin or even demonic influence. And uh, this is something Ian and I have talked about often, but I'd be curious from your perspective, why do you think that is kind of how the church has always dealt with depression? You know, there have actually been some history uh, sections of history that they've dealt quite well with depression. So I think that's the first thing I would say, because that was a surprise to me mm-hmm. to find that there have been segments throughout history who have treated it uh, as something that is a bodily illness that needs to be treated that way. Um, but in relation to your question, I think 
Some of it comes through uh, certain interpretations of scripture. So a story like Judas Iscariot committing suicide after um, betraying Jesus, people have pointed to that and say, see, something like suicide is a sign of God's judgment or a rejection of God. Mm. Um, Another story is King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel who, um, because of his defiance of God, is it loses his sanity and becomes like an animal. And so, again, they'll point to a story like that and say uh, that mental illness is a sign of, of God's judgment. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it is, has been, unfortunately, tied to the Bible, but um, obviously I don't agree with those interpretations myself. <laughs> right, right. So you actually mentioned in the book names that I, I think a lot of people will recognize, like Luther and Spurgeon, Mother Teresa. And you go on to offer some practical wisdom. Obviously, we want people to go and buy the book. But can you give us just like a taste of what some of that practical wisdom, either for people who are struggling or people who care for those who are struggling? Yeah. So in each chapter, I pull out a main theme of advice from that person's story. I, mm-hmm. I think of Martin Luther, whose advice would be to flee solitude. Um, depression makes us want to withdraw, but he would say being alone is one of the worst things that you can do because it allows space for your thoughts to fester. So he would say, go find other people who can help pull you out of your own brain and um, be a comfort to you in that way. Hmm. Uh, The preacher Charles Spurgeon would say that uh, there are anchors of hope in the promises of God and scripture Um, I think some people have heard that maxim that they just need to read the Bible more and their Mm -hmm. depression will go away. And that's not what he's saying. Um, But he is saying that that keeping hope in front of yourself, like we find in the Bible, can be a great comfort during a a time of struggle. And then someone like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. found a great deal of resilience in humor, ironically enough, Mm -hmm. and in his own uh, faith. And in the comfort of music, uh, singing songs that just reminded him that God could make a way out of no way and that God would never leave him alone. Hmm. I would love to hear more of Mother Teresa's story. I've never heard uh, about her struggles. Could you share just a kind of a thumbnail sketch of Mother Teresa's story? Sure. So she had this beautiful, intimate relationship with Jesus Um during her early years in in the religious life. And then about the time that she received the call to start the Missionaries of Charity, uh, which was the the ministry that made her famous with her work in Calcutta, it was like the lights went out and Mm -hmm. she felt like she couldn't hear God's voice anymore. She couldn't sense his presence with her. Um, She said that she felt like she couldn't pray. Um, She said, everything within me is, is like an ice block. Uh, was her her language. And that's how she lived for the rest of her life. Mm. Um, All of that, that work that we know her for of just exuding love and joy and service um, in, in, in her inner life, it was dark. Mm. Um, I, it's hard to know just because we don't have much information about that. We didn't know about that part of her life until years after her death, um, when some of her letters, uh, private letters were published. So because we don't have a lot of information, it's impossible to know if she was clinically depressed. But from my own experience and that of everyone I've talked to who has struggled with depression, that that sense of the the dryness and the silence um, mm-hmm. in the spiritual life, I think, is 
something that we've experienced in the midst of depression. And so that's why I wanted to include her in this book, because I think she has something to, to speak to that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when we did our series on mental health, we also uh, interviewed mental health professionals kind of interwoven throughout the sermons because we kind of recognized that we were in over our own heads just as preachers and pastors. And the the feedback that we kept getting over and over again was, thank you for removing the stigma. Like it feels like conversations regarding mental health of any kind in the church world is still, even in 2020, pretty highly stigmatized. I'd be curious to know why you think that is. That's a great question. And I wish I had a good answer to it because then that would give us a clue to know how to start to address it. Hmm. Um, I think there have been prominent church leaders and preachers who have continued to perpetuate that. I think with depression too, there comes with this sense of guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. Um, And that doesn't help us, you know, in the middle of it, be able to push back against that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But I have found it to be really helpful to think about depression like I do other illnesses, right? Mm. So there are ways that we can help our bodies work uh, towards health. (laughs) Um, But some of us still, whether by our genetics or our life circumstances, will still fall prey to depression or or any other illness. Um, But we know within the community of the faith to help people who are struggling in that way. Mm -hmm. And I think being able to use those tools for people who are struggling in the middle of a mental health crisis uh, would really set us out in the right direction. Uh, We're joined right now by Diana Groover. She's the author of a book that's coming out tomorrow called Companions in the Darkness, Seven Saints Who Struggled with Depression and Doubt. And we're glad that Diana is going to join us for another segment coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm, and we're excited to be joined for a second segment by Diana Groover, the author of a new book that's coming out tomorrow entitled Companions in the Darkness, Seven Saints Who Struggled with Depression and Doubt. If you missed the first segment, be sure to go uh, listen to that on our podcast. But Diana, we, Ian and I are both pastors. We've talked about uh, that. That's kind of the bent that we attack life from. And, and I'm wondering, in your opinion, we talked in the first segment about churches have not necessarily done a good job in teaching and helping people as they struggle with depression. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, what are some things that you think the church could do better? If the church did these few things, then we'd start making some traction and the church could start being a help in this. I've learned through writing this book that the types of stories that we choose to tell really communicate something. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that very few of us have heard the stories that are in Companions in the Darkness, that in and of itself communicates something, Mm -hmm. right? It says that maybe these stories aren't important or even worse, that maybe we should be ashamed of them. And so I think sometimes a good first step is just paying attention to what kind of stories do we choose to tell in the context of the church, right? right? What stories do we choose to tell in the context of maybe a testimony time at church or the way that we pray for people at church, just even on a Sunday morning? Yeah. I think just there's something about speaking something from the front of a church service that gives people freedom, I think, to talk about it, mm. to pray about it, and to acknowledge that it's something that they struggle with. And so I think for pastors, that would be a really good place to start is to to pay attention to 
whether you from just your leadership from the pulpit on a Sunday morning are offering a space for people to talk about these kinds of things. Well, that's actually something you did in the first segment at the very beginning, which I really appreciate. You, you didn't just simply write a book about a topic that you're interested mm-hmm. in, but you said that it's also something that you've walked yourself. And I mean, first off, just thank you for, for sharing that with us. Secondly, I'd love to know, what was it like to write a book about a topic that you yourself have wrestled with? Like, was that cathartic? Was was that disproportionately difficult? Like, what was what was that journey like for you? I think in some ways it was cathartic or, and I, I want to, I don't want to overuse a word like this, but in some ways redemptive, right? I don't think mm. we're often or always given opportunities to see God begin to redeem some of our own pain or seasons right. of struggle. And so the fact that some of my darkest days that I have walked through to this point could be the impetus for something that I pray is a help and comfort for other people is a really beautiful thing to get to experience. Hmm. Um, Also, I feel like I've already been able to start to apply some of the lessons from the saints in this book. And I'm thankful for that because I've been the one that's gotten to deep dive into their stories and wrestle through the advice and, and their experience. And I've started to put some of that into practice myself. And, and that's a gift yeah. to me. Yeah. So in reading your story, I, I, it brought back to memory. I was preaching a sermon a couple of years ago when I was talking about depression. Uh, and I encourage people uh, who are struggling in a couple different ways. One of them uh, to seek out a doctor and, and get medicated, take, consider taking medication. I got real pushback on that, which to be honest with you, surprised me at the time. Uh, I would be curious for you because there might be people listening who are like, well, no, that I don't think Christians should medicate for depression. How would you answer that question or that pushback from people? I would ask them if they think it's okay for Christians to take medication for something like diabetes mm-hmm. or high blood pressure or cholesterol. <laughs> I, I think most people would not hesitate to say, yes, if you need medication to help your body work right, and you or, or you need medication to be able to live a life so that you can have a fruitful legacy to live and be able mm-hmm. to engage in the work God has given you, most people wouldn't hesitate. And so I think, and I know I mentioned this earlier in the program, but I think being able to think about depression in a similar light would be really helpful. I, I think there's some sense where we think that we must be able to have control over our thought patterns or the inner workings of our brain. Um, and that's part of why there's a, maybe a hesitation or we put depression or other mental illnesses in a different category. But a brain is also a part of our body. Mm-hmm. And right. sometimes our brains break down just like our bodies do. And, and there's no shame in that. Um, I, I do think that there are some lifestyle things we can incorporate to help the medication work to the best, just like with any of those other illnesses I mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think medication can be a really helpful step for people and, and in some ways a faithful act of discipleship. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know what you think the relationship is between telling stories of really well-known faith leaders. Cause I find that a lot of people know like, yeah, they, I know that mental health is like a thing out there, but for some reason, when you pull back the curtain on people that we sort of hold up as tightened or juggernauts, there's, there's all of a sudden like a, a new kind of leaning in like, Oh, our, even Spurgeon, huh? Even, even like, why do you think that is? Why, why does that elevate like some people's 
interest in listening if we know that it's affected people that like we really hold up in high regard? Yeah, it's it's one thing for me to share my story with you, right? But it's another thing if it's somebody that I put up on a pedestal. Right. Um, I, I think that 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 dynamic really helps to undermine some of the stigma around depression, right? Because, uh, and I say this in the book, but no one's going to tell Charles Spurgeon that he wouldn't be depressed if he just read his Bible more. <laughs> right, right. Right. <laughs> um, or, or nobody's going to tell Mother Teresa that she just needs to choose joy. You just wouldn't have the audacity <laughs> right. to do that. And so I think there's something uh, in knowing that some of our heroes struggled in the same way we do that gives us freedom to say, oh, I, I can struggle like that too. And not only can I struggle like that, but the fact that I am depressed does not mean that God cannot work in me and God cannot work mm -hmm. through me. Mm -hmm. That's right. And do you feel the same way? I, I assume you do. There might be, we know that there's pastors who listen to our show, pastors who struggle. And Ian and I have done many stories about pastors kind of pretending like everything is okay. Uh, would you encourage pastors who maybe uh, have struggled with depression throughout their life to talk about it from the pulpit? Do you think that's helpful for their church? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think that can be really powerful. I think we've seen some uh, some challenging outcomes of that if it's just completely out of the blue. Um, so I would encourage a pastor who's struggling to start with maybe the elder team or the church yeah. board, depending on their church structure, maybe even their spouse, if that's not something that they felt like they could talk freely with their spouse about and start from there so that they have a support network in place um, to be able to share more freely about it. Because um, I think I think you're right. It is important for pastors to be able to share but I think making sure that you're surrounding yourself with the necessary support and taking some of the necessary right. steps you need to be well before just um, dropping that news from the pulpit out of the blue one Sunday. Yeah, I think that's smart. Okay, so moment of truth. We want to make sure people know how to get in contact with you or buy the book or find you on Twitter. Do you have a launch party happening? Hit us with any of that information. Yeah, so you can find me online at my website, dianagroover.com. I'm also on Twitter at Diana Groover and on Facebook at Diana Groover Writer. Um, and you can find links to the book on my website and on social media and also at my publisher, InterVarsity Press's website as well. And we are having a virtual launch party tomorrow evening. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, we can't gather in person, but the advantage of that is that you don't have to be in South Central Pennsylvania to be able to come. <laughs> so right, that right. will be uh, live streaming tomorrow, November 24th at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And you'll find that live stream on my author Facebook page at Diana Groover Writer. And it'd be great to have you join. Awesome. We, That's awesome. That other voice you've been listening to is Diana Groover. Uh, her new book is Companions in the Darkness, Seven Saints Who Struggled with Depression and Doubt. Diana, thanks so much for joining us. And congratulations again on your first book coming out yes. tomorrow. We, we appreciate yes. your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been good to be with you. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're glad that you've joined us here on this Monday afternoon. If you've missed any of the show, you can find it at our Facebook page. The things we've discussed uh, at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Also, uh, if you've missed any of the interviews we've done, go to 1160hope.com or go find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. What we ask you to do is to subscribe, rate, and review. That really does help us, and it helps people 
find the podcast. Uh, well, Ian, I wanted to end the show, uh, talk about something I saw on Twitter. But before we did, before we do, people are like, hey, did you forget the holidays for today? What are the holidays for today? Well, never fear. We're going to do that. So what are the holidays? I'm today? sure people were really clamoring for this. They it's uh, Labor they Thanksgiving are. Day in Japan, actually. Um, St. George's Day in Georgia. Uh, National Sovereignty Day in Argentina, but those aren't the ones that you want to well, hear about. It's World Hello Day, not. so <laughs> hello to you. I'm just uh, National Cashew Day. I love, of course, <laughs> I do. Uh, National <laughs> Eat a Cranberry Day, just one. I do not like cranberries. Oh, I do not. Are like you cranberries. serious? Mm-hmm. And National Espresso Day. Cr- Go ahead. You tell me your thoughts on espresso. Big, big fan. Yeah, I know. Okay. I'm just picturing if you were to get, if I were to send like, uh, if I were to post something for National Hello Day, I think it has to be Forrest Gump, Tom Hanks and Forrest Gump just waving from the boat. Mm, that's a good one. That's a good, that's a good entry for World Hello Day. World Hello Day. Okay. Is there a World Goodbye Day? That is the question. <laughs> I have no uh, idea. All right, so let me read this to you. I saw this on Twitter, and before I tell everyone, I know you and I have both seen this, but before I tell everybody where it came from, I would like to, let me just read this. Here it goes. Neither the fanatics nor the faint-hearted are needed, and our duty uh, as a party is not to our party alone, but to the nation and indeed to all mankind. Our duty is not merely the preservation of political power, but the preservation of peace and freedom. So let us not be petty when our cause is so great. Let us not quarrel amongst ourselves when our nation's future is at stake. Let us stand together with renewed confidence in our cause, united in our heritage of the past and our hopes for the future, and determined that this land we love shall lead all mankind into new frontiers of peace and abundance. Uh, So I wanted to read that here at the end, because I feel like those words, uh, if somebody said those today as a politician, I'd be like, I want to be behind that person. Like that is the same stuff we're wrestling with today about party and not just being about party alone and needing to not be faint hearted and this call to unity Uh, that might sound like something somebody said or tweeted this weekend. That was great. But here's who said, who wrote those words. Those words were written by John F. Kennedy Jr. by JFK. They were written on note cards for the end of a speech that he planned to give at an Austin, Texas banquet on the evening of November the 22nd, 1963. Uh, If you know history, he obviously never gave those words because that is the day he was assassinated uh, in Dallas. He wrote those words to be given on a speech that night. And so, Ian, I found that to be so powerful. That's from the Twitter account of Michael Beschloss. Beschloss. Uh, He kind of tweeted all day about the Kennedy assassination and what happened that day. Uh, When you read those words, Ian, or hear those words, I wonder, uh, are you encouraged that the fact that we've been wrestling with this and we keep trying to get this right? Or are you discouraged that all these years later, not only have we not gotten it right, but maybe we've gone backwards a little bit? How do you feel when you read those words? I don't know that I'm discouraged. It gives me some hope to know that you know, we've been fighting similar battles for a long time. That does give a sense of constancy and despondency. You're like, oh, okay, wait a minute. Is it always going to be like this? You know, that's sort <laughs> yes. of a, 
sort of a one-two punch. It is worth saying this is JFK, not JFK Jr. Just oh, did I say? Did. I just want to make sure people knew. Just want to make sure people knew. Only one of the only one of the biggest historical <laughs> events in the history of our country. Sorry, just, about one, that. just want to Thank clarify for our listeners. Like, wait a minute, I can't find the I can't find the quote. No, I, I think um, <laughs> it is. There's something to. I mean, we've been seeing a lot of people posting like C.S. Lewis quotes, some screw tape. Like, it, it feels interesting that we're in a time right now where there there is a collective desire to like reach back into history and pull out the wisdom that people shared during previous trying times and seasons. So it feels like there's a collective sense of like, all right, we're a bit cloudy right now. What you know? What did they say 50 years ago, 60 years ago? What do we what do we need to like reopen our eyes to? And not to not to get all biblical, but when I think about uh, <laughs> you're what, thanks, to. I appreciate that. One of the one of the things that Jesus says about uh, the Holy Spirit, the Advocate, who he'll be sending, he's saying this to you know his disciples. He says he'll remind you of the things you know to be true, like this reminding component. I've mentioned this on the show a number of times. I feel like often we're really clamoring for like new revelation and new insight, new new. Like there's a there's a high obsession with new, and I totally get it. But there is something to be said about the wisdom of what somebody said in 1963. Mm-hmm. And grappling with not allowing ourselves to be discouraged that we're at the place that we're at, but, but asking the questions as to why. Like, what about human nature? What about, mm-hmm. I don't know, if you want to talk about the role of sin or human brokenness or God's sovereignty or providence or the Holy Spirit's participation with us? Like, what what is it about us? And maybe, you know, first asking me, like, what is it in my heart that yeah. fails to recognize this, to live this out? Uh, I think those are helpful exercises uh, as long as they don't yeah. lead you into a sort of never-ending spiral of sadness and despondency i think i think it is a, a helpful thing to do yeah how would you answer that question then what is it about human nature uh that leads us over and over again whether it's lincoln writing right or john f kennedy writing or uh many people writing today going what we, we can't get this right what do you think it is about uh human nature you know what i actually think it is i don't think i've ever said this out loud before i think it all comes down to fear i I think that is the that is the great Uh narrative of humankind i think that the journey from fear to love is the story of the gospel of hi pippa of uh the last (laughs) segment again (laughs) it's unbelievable keep going i really enjoy what you're saying but yes no four days in a row my dog is pretty impressive you got you got to give it to her it's pretty impressive no, I think um, often we think of fear. We only think of fear like in a, in a surface sense. Like I'm afraid of the bear that's chasing me. Or I'm afraid on this roller coaster. I think I think fear undergird, undergirds a lot of the vitriol that we see, all a lot of the resentment, a lot of what we see is anger. Anger is a secondary emotion. You know, we I think I think a lot of people know that, and I don't think it's a surprise that. The Bible mentions fear, do not fear, it shows up 365 mm-hmm. times throughout Scripture. That's a little pithy of a truism, but it's also something that shows up that often. I wonder if there's really something to that, like how much of what we do or don't do is a result of fear. And if we're to be people of love, you know, and Jesus speaks to this specifically, right? You can't, you can't love and be afraid of someone. Like you can't love drives out fear. Like that's that's significant. So when I read these words from JFK, I go, Oh yeah, that makes that makes sense that we that when we want to preserve political power or some of the other things that he's writing here, the stuff that we give up on or whatever. I don't know. I think that there I think that 
yeah. being fear at the core of it has been really helpful for me. Oh, I appreciate that. That's that's a good. I I wouldn't have answered that as fear. So I mm-hmm. think that's that's a. You're well, how would you answer something? I think that's good. I don't know how I would answer that. I would have said sin and brokenness, but actually the sin I think uh, and and the struggle of fear. You, I think you've laid it out really well. I'm 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 now going to say fear. <laughs> well, <laughs> right I actually think you've gotten it right there. Fear of losing power. Fear of things changing. Uh, all sorts of fear. Fear of the other. Right. Unquote, right. I think. I think it's a really important thing. And uh, I do think there's some reason for optimism when you go, okay, people have been wrestling with this, but look at these words. Like, like, like let's embrace this sort of optimism while recognizing the same way JFK did on that day, even uh, going, uh, there's, we're still divided. And I think in our day, as we know, we're divided, still having optimism and being people who are going to uh, lead the way, I think is important for the church. Uh, and for us as individuals. So we'll put this up at our Facebook page, uh, The Common Good Radio Show. Powerful stuff uh, from Michael Beschloss. And uh, if you missed any of the show, go find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Well, we're glad to be with you today. uh, And we're going to be with you tomorrow, Lord willing, from (laughs) four until six. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good. You're on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.